Well, turn in your Bibles, please, to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. I've been anticipating this study for some time, and I trust that it will be a benefit to you personally, but that it also will be a benefit to those whom we serve. And we have been blessed to be able to serve others, other churches in particular, but also with a capacity to serve in Malawi in a way that is not only specifically serving churches now, but is specifically preparing pastors to serve in perhaps innumerable churches in the days and years to come. Second Corinthians chapter 8, and I'll be reading verses 1 through 7. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us." Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, so that you excel in this act of grace also. Father, we plead with you this morning to use your word to produce growth in us, that each of us would leave here this morning having decreased, that Christ would increase. We ask this for your glory. Amen. We've said from our text this morning that we will see the example of the churches who, by God's grace, gave while experiencing severe affliction with abundant joy in extreme poverty with a wealth of generosity and sacrificial eagerness as to the Lord with excellence so that we would faithfully do the same by God's grace. If there is any theme that permeates the Scripture in such a way that a person who's regularly faithfully reading the Scripture is going to see it, it's the concept of grace. And yet, there's some possibility. I'm going to go out on a limb here and suggest that many of you probably, when you thought about giving, grace was not the first thing that came to your mind, and that probably was the result of some teaching that you had heard on giving that might have even pounded the pulpit a little bit and told you that you needed to give an exact percentage, devoid of any expression of grace at all. I suggest that we've all probably heard those misguided sermons. But in our text this morning, as he frequently does, Paul emphasizes the concept of grace. And so if you were on edge this morning, realizing that the teaching would be on giving, you ought to be relaxed right now. You ought to just really be comfortable knowing that there is absolutely no external compulsion from the heart of the one who's faithfully teaching what the Bible says. And therefore, it can be spoken with confidence and boldness and with grace. And in a way, that would potentially maximize the grace-filled efforts of a local church. 
And you and I are going to have the privilege to hear from our finance team this morning. We're not doing the in-depth study that we normally do in verse by verse. This is more of a survey of this passage. The purpose of this survey is to further deepen your understanding and your devotion to the concept of grace. And then our finance team is going to come and share with you what that's looked like over the last five and a half years and what we hope that it will continue to look like in even greater measure in the coming years as well. Point number one, I want you to see giving with joyous generosity by the grace of God. I want you to see the Macedonians' joyous giving, that their joyous giving was joyous giving by the grace of God. It's by grace that their giving was joyous. Now, verse one is really kind of introductory to all these other points. So let's read verse 1, and then we'll unfold the four points that come out of the rest of this text. Verse 1 says, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Uh, this is really kind of a, what you might call pastoral cherry-picking. You know, Here's a group of people who have been faithful. A pastor knows about it, and he says, Hey, folks, this is the example. This is the standard, really. We see these folks operating in a way that truly reflects the intent of the instruction of Scripture. And so what does he say? What does he say he wants them to know? It's very similar to Paul's statement when he starts talking about the spiritual gifts. He says, I don't want you to be unaware. Saying the same thing here. I want you to be aware. I want you to know. I want you to know about what? He doesn't say, I want you to know about the dollar uh, figure. I don't want you to know the amount or the percentage. I don't want you to know or be aware of their ability or seeming ability to fulfill the law. That's certainly not the case. He doesn't talk about the tithe. What he says is, I want you to know about the grace given them. Now, you might think he's emphasizing the grace that they extend, and that's because he is. But he's emphasizing the grace that they extend because it's born out of the grace extended to them. And that's how it works. Now think of it, the efforts that someone has made with you that are not grace-filled probably don't necessarily lead you to operate by grace in that instruction. Unless, of course, you're just rigidly bent on responding with grace even when it's not given to you. And that's, that's the goal. That's the idea. We want to get to that place where we respond with grace even when instructions are not given to us with grace. But more than likely, the growth that you have experienced in Christ has come through grace-saturated delivery. It's been those moments where grace is evident in the terminology. It's evident in the tone. It's evident in the lifestyle. And the result is you want to hear more. That's really what Paul's doing here. He's exposing the fact that the Macedonians responded to grace with grace. Responding to God's grace by extending God's grace to others. So again, point one, giving with joyous generosity. It's clear from the text. He says, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. To the Thessalonians, in chapter 1, verse 6, Paul says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, 
for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit. So they didn't receive the word in much affliction with an entitlement attitude that says, I don't deserve this, I deserve better. They received the word with affliction, with joy. He says in chapter 2 to the Thessalonians, verse 14, For you, brothers, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you suffered the same things from your own countrymen as they did from the Jews, who killed both the Lord Jesus and the prophets and drove us out and displeased God and opposed all mankind. They were giving, they chose to give with a joyous generosity that Paul had noted in them. He noted their joy, and he noted that their joy was manifest in the midst of affliction, even suffering at the hands of the Jews, specifically the Jews who killed Jesus Christ. And in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 4, Paul says to the Thessalonians, Therefore we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. And it would have been on Paul's mind that he's talking about Corinth here. We boast to the church of Corinth about you. And this is not a shaming This is not to say, hey, they're doing well, what's your problem? It's to say, this is who you want to be like. You know, many times in the Christian faith, we'll say things, you'll hear people say things like, don't compare yourself to others. I would say, don't compare yourself to others with an idolatrous or a malicious pursuit. But certainly acknowledge and recognize that there are those who are faithful and you want to emulate them, right? You want to be discipled, even if it's from a distance, by those who are exhibiting faithfulness. And the Thessalonians certainly did. They were a great example. They were a great example of how to operate by faith. Paul says to the Philippians, one of the three churches that he's talking about here, the Thessalonians, the Philippians, the Bereans, He says, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. No, but it's true. See, it's been granted to you. Say, wait a minute. (laughs) It's been granted to me. Yeah, by God, for you to suffer for Christ's sake. It's not some morbid effort on the part of the God-man to make you hurt The idea is that when you suffer, and you suffer with joy, you display the glory of Jesus Christ. The person in whom your trust is displayed when you suffer that way. And so therefore, it's part of your design. And in particular, when it comes to the area of money, right? When we're suffering, we think, no, I'm restricted. I'm not able to give. You're going to see from this text this morning, that's not the case at all. I'm so restricted, I can't give, but joy changes that. The joy of the Holy Spirit changes that. So we are looking here at the Macedonians' willingness to give with joyous generosity. How? Why? From what source? From what motivation? Grace. It's by the grace of God. That's the absolute only solution. It's the only recipe for giving with joy amidst affliction. Well, point number two, I want you to see their giving proportionately, sacrificially, 
and eagerly by the grace of God. So proportionately, sacrificially, and eagerly by the grace of God. Paul says, for they gave according to their means. That's proportionately. They gave according to what they had received. Now, the clear implication is that they were giving in such a way that was in accord with what they had received. And so the idea then is that we would give if we are receiving. You say, I don't have nearly enough income to give anything. No, that's not true. If you have some income, you have something to give. And there were plenty of those who would have said no, and there are those today who would say no. It's just not enough. When you're giving proportionately, you are giving in light of the fact that you have received something that is an act of grace. And that changes everything. So when you start thinking, okay, it's given to me by grace, therefore for me to give is not so much a mathematic issue, although math is important. It's not so much a mathematic issue as it is a matter of grace. I can give because I do receive. Jesus words, as recorded in the book of Acts, is that it's better to give than to receive. You say, how do I do that? You've got to understand God's grace. I'd encourage you to avoid manipulative teaching that beats you over the head with some idea of giving a particular amount. He says he can testify to this. Paul knew the churches in Macedonia. He says they also gave beyond their means, so that's sacrificially. So they gave proportionally, but then they gave more. They gave in regard to or in perspective of what they had been given, and then they went beyond that. A few weeks ago, I read to you a short article from Tim Challies who said the idea here is that you're giving so that it hurts. How do I quantify this? You give so it hurts. You give so that you're missing out on something. And plenty of things throughout the years that Kimberly and I have looked at and said, yeah, we would do that, but we can't. Or we might do this, but it'd be better to give to the Lord and to the church. And I know many of you have experienced the blessing of that same willful decision. And as we have looked substantially at what we would call the treasure principle in Scripture, we can see that it's not like we're going to ultimately go without. In fact, this is the only way to ultimately receive a return, a return that will never be stripped from us. When I think of this idea, I always think of Mary. You know, Jesus says about her that her portion can't be taken away from her. Why? Because her portion is not something that she took to do and took mastery of and ownership of in such a way that, no, it's mine. Nobody else can do it. Nobody else could possibly do this the way I do it. That was Martha, right? You know, don't get, don't get involved in my ministry unless you do it exactly the way I do it, right? That was Martha. Mary's, Mary's joy, Mary's portion was to sit at the feet of Christ, and Jesus said it can't be taken away from her. And so what you do while sitting at the feet of Christ, what you do by grace, what you do with a proportionate but sacrificial effort is something that while you feel the pain of it, ultimately you will feel the reward of it and it will never be taken away from you. But it's also eager. 
This giving is proportionate, but beyond proportionate, it's sacrificial. But beyond that, it's eager. Paul says, these Macedonian churches, the Philippians, the Thessalonians, the Bereans, they were begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in relief of the saints. They begged to do it. The leadership must have thought, well, you can't give. I mean, you don't have anything to give. Please let us give. Please let us have the benefit. Please let us have the blessing of ministering to those Jewish Christians who are under persecution, who are in a Roman culture where every effort on the Roman government was to strip Jewish Christians of every dime they had. Can't we help them? Surely we've got at least a little bit more than they do to where we can pass it on to them. See, they gave according to their means, which was couched in poverty, but then they gave more, and then they asked if they could give more. These people had no regard for self. This was a selfless, sacrificial service on their part, and that's how they saw it. They saw it as a service. They saw it as a blessing. You see this idea wrapped up in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So it's a a living and holy sacrifice. It's not like the, the sacrifice of an animal who's put to death, and then there is no more benefit from that sacrifice, it's a one-time sacrifice, and really that's all it is, is a sacrifice. There's some residual benefits in some cases where the one performing the sacrifice was able to consume what was sacrificed, but that's a one-time event. But that living and holy sacrifice is the gift that keeps giving. It is that expression of gratitude. It's a willingness to receive grace and extend grace that says this can never be taken away from me. I'll enjoy it forever, and I'm eager to do that. Paul goes on in Romans 12, 2 to say, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See, they gave for the relief of the Jerusalem church, who was in fact very, very poverty-stricken. You know, you have this opportunity. The Lord has given us this opportunity in what many consider to be the poorest nation in the world, Malawi. Back in November, as I flew into Lalongwe, Malawi, to teach at the seminary there, I saw two things looking down from the airplane. I saw shacks. I saw tin roof, thatch-roofed shacks, all made out of thatch, as far as the eye could see literally thousands of them, and I saw rows and rows and rows of crops. And of course, one of my first questions when I arrived was, what is that? It's it's mace. Nearly everyone survives on the mace that they grow in their backyard or some field nearby. Mace is used to make porridge. They call it nsima, N-S-I-M-A, nsima. It's a thick, mashed, grits-like dish, and Malawians are so dependent upon it that they often eat it for breakfast, lunch, and dinner 
has very, very little nutritional value. It has some. There's some protein in it, some, obviously some carbohydrates. Uh, when Gideon Manda was here, you remember Gideon, he's the national in Malawi who has been to preach here, and he is teaching in the seminary there. He pastors in the church there. Gideon was here. We stopped at In-N-Out on the way back from the Shepherds Conference. I didn't know if he'd been to In-N-Out during his stay here, but I thought he ought to at least have one opportunity to do that. And so uh, I asked him, Gideon, how does this compare to what you're accustomed to in Malawi? And he said, there's no variety. Uh, you know, you eat Sema pretty much every day. And having been there for a week or 10 days or so myself, I began to wonder if that was really true because so much of what we were eating cooked by his wife at the seminary was actually wonderful. It was really good food, and, and there was some variety from day to day. It, there was always in Sema, but there was some variety, and, and that's because they are serving with sacrifice. In fact, I had dinner in Gideon's home, and it was an absolute feast. And as we Americans often do, I think I sat down and immediately thought, oh, I guess they eat like this every night. And then I begin to realize, no, that's not the case at all. They're serving me with sacrifice. Malawi is one of the top ten producers of tobacco. That's really their other crop. This accounts for almost all of Malawi's agricultural export earnings. This means that the economy is too dependent on this harvest. And so a bad weather year can mean a significant hit in earnings. And so therefore, when Malawi starts to rise up out of that position of being the poorest country in the world, a drought comes and plop, there they are back down. There's not much structure going on in the government in Malawi to produce economy. It really is all about everyone getting and keeping what they possibly can and preventing others from flourishing, not like the capitalistic society that we are blessed to live in. Interestingly, while Malawi produces so much tobacco, almost no one smokes. They can't afford it. The average man in Malawi makes around three or $400 a year. Probably less than a dollar a day. You have given over $16,000 to Kappa. Teaching and training pastors. I mean, think of how far that money will go to train men in one of the poorest societies on the face of the planet. And I expect that you will give more. 12,000 of those dollars were given in the last two weeks. And as you'll see, when Brad comes to share with you what has been going on financially in our church that not only did not make a dent in your regular giving, your regular giving went up massively. While giving $12,000 on top of that, specifically to the ministries in Malawi. So this is something for which you are to be commended. You are serving faithfully in this way. By God's grace, you are giving proportionately. I believe you are giving sacrificially. And you are giving eagerly. Point number three, I want you to see that the Macedonians were giving as to the Lord by the grace of God. 
giving first to the Lord. Verse 5 says, And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. It doesn't mean that they first gave an amount to God and then they gave an amount to Paul. Uh, the idea was that that was the hard attitude. They gave first in their hearts to the Lord. And they did so by God's grace. So when the giving is offered, the mindset is, I'm giving to God. I'm giving to the Lord. You see this same mindset in Colossians chapter 3 with regard to your job, in particular when you're working for someone who is unreasonable. Why do you do well in your job? Why do you work hard? Why do you work with excellence? Why are you committed to the details? Because you're doing your work as heartily unto the Lord. And your boss happens to be the unexpected, blessed recipient of your God-focused work. And that's how you give. That's the right attitude in giving. This was a ministry of worship for the Macedonians. In 1 Peter 2, verse 4, Peter says, As you come to him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. You're offering it acceptable to God. And that requires a self-examination in your own life, not only a matter of examining your heart when you're dropping it in the bag or writing that check, but a matter of living such a way that's dependent upon God's grace. You're not thinking legalistically. You're not thinking based on performance. You're not trusting in your achievement. I saw a quote from John MacArthur this week that said there are two religions. There is the religion of grace, and there is the religion of human achievement. And that is really the truth. And it's easy for us to focus on the false theology of Roman Catholicism that is deeply and publicly and extensively rooted in a works-based salvation. But what about you and me? You and I ought to be asking the question, do I give just out of some rote obligation? Is it a perfunctory act? Or is it, in fact, an act of grace, specifically an act of grace that manifests itself in worship from the heart? That I'm really, really giving with joy. I'm really giving with sacrifice. I'm really giving with eagerness. And I'm doing so because I'm giving to the Lord. As I said a number of weeks ago, this requires that you know your leadership. If you have questions about the integrity of the leadership of your church, then the only way that can be remedied is by knowing them. And this is one of the benefits. It's not the reason we do it, but it's one of the benefits of having a family group shepherd, a foundational leader in our church, meaning one of the primary leaders in our church, one of the elders in our church that exercises a shepherding role in your life. That You look to him for your accountability but he also looks to you for accountability. And at the point where you 
place that person in a position of being required to never ever sin and have perfect conduct, now you're not operating by grace. But when you expect that person to be a faithful, repentant sinner who's saved by grace, now you're thinking rightly. Now you're thinking rightly when you're thinking based on grace. And your expectations of that person is that, by and large, he would operate by grace, that he would return to grace. He would help you return to grace as well. Well, point number four, I want you to see the giving with excellence of the Macedonians. Giving with excellence. Verse 6 says, Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. This act of grace that Titus had initiated among them was one that hadn't been repeated in over a year. In 2 Corinthians 9, verse 2, Paul says to them, Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. And so uh, this one group waiting a year... We don't know why entirely, but we do know that the stimulation to go ahead and give that gift was the result of being exposed to the faithfulness of others. That's giving with excellence. That's a willingness to acknowledge that there is some expectation. In 1 Corinthians 2, Paul says on the first day of of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. So there's this regular effort to set money aside, to give regularly. And of course, on a practical level for us as a local church, with the bills necessary to keep the building uh, with lights on, <laughs> cooled in the summer, heated in the winter, etc., on and on and on. There's so many things that you're going to see more about that here in a few minutes. But with regard to giving on a regular basis, Paul doesn't instruct us to give on a regular basis because we've got a budget, we've got to stick to the budget. Paul just requires that we give on a regular basis because a present active imperative in the Scripture means that it's ongoing. And the purpose for it being ongoing is that it's a regular reflection of operating by grace. You know, you don't give one time. You don't give some massive gift and think, okay, that'll, that'll carry me for a while. I'll be right with the Lord for surely a year or so. You know, won't it last that long? No, it's to be done regularly. And that is part of what it is to give with excellence. He says in verse 7, but as you excel in everything, in faith, he kind of runs the gamut here of faithful conduct, in faith, right, in your trusting, in your dependence upon God and his sovereign, gracious character. So in speech, right, what you say, how you say it, you know, are you reflecting scripture in the words? Are you reflecting scripture in your heart attitude, your tone, and how you say it? In knowledge, is your knowledge from scripture? In all earnestness, right, seriousness, genuineness, sincerity, and in our love for You, see that you excel in this act of grace also. That's where we get the idea of it being done with excellence. That you would 
excel. How do you do this with excellence? Well, it requires knowing what Scripture says about it, of course. A willingness to be faithful to what Scripture says, but it also requires a willingness to subject yourself to discipleship. You know, that you would be seeking the wisdom of the multitude of counselors that God has blessed you with in your life. You know, fellowship. Talk about this. Think through it with other believers, other mature believers. But excelling or doing things with excellence means that you do your best to do well, and then you do your best to do better. And I'm not talking specifically about doing your best to give and then doing your best to give more. It's not what that means. The idea is that you are truly giving as per Paul's instructions here, that you're giving sacrificially, you're giving joyously. I, I remember a dear friend saying to me one time, I don't think I can give this much. What should I give? And I said, well, start by giving with joy. What can you give joyously? What can you then give sacrificially? Not just accordingly or appropriately in contrast to what you're receiving, but what can you give above and beyond what your needs seem to be allowing. So giving with excellence is to do so by the grace of God, but it's a willingness to examine your heart, examine your conduct, examine your giving, and ask the question, how can I do this with more excellence? How can I do more and more and more to ensure that what I am spending my money on is reflective of God's grace? I've gotten more emails and texts and had conversations with quite a number of you, telling me how the teaching of God's Word in this area has really changed your life, that you've been thinking through how you can cut certain things out so as to be able to give more. You know, what I'd like to do is collect all those messages and post them so the world can see so that other churches would grow in their understanding of how this works. You teach faithfully what God's Word says, and God's people grow, and God's people Respond. It's been a joy for me to observe that. The issue here is that giving is an act of grace. It's an expression of an awareness of God's grace and a willingness to pass that grace on to others, not just in giving, but in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in earnestness, in everything. But maybe the most practical manifestation of operating by grace is how you manage God's treasure. It might be the most practical act of worship in which you will ever engage. Well, how do you do this? How can you become this person who gives by grace? I've got four quick instructions. Number one, be humble. Be humble, right? Who does God give grace to? To the humble, he says in 1 Peter 5 and James 4. Be humble. Be the person who's not thinking, I make the money, I earned it, it's mine, I'm going to do with it what I want. I don't know anybody in our church that I think has that attitude, but certainly all of us from time to time might be tempted to think that here and there. What we ought to be thinking is, God, you showered me with financial blessing among other resources in my life. How can I better understand and operate based on the fact that that's exactly what that is? Everything good is from above. So be humble. Number two, be discipled. Be discipled by operating in such a way that the activity of others is influencing you, just as 
some churches have had influence on other churches in our text this morning, that you and I, how about this, that you and I would be an example to other churches, and friends, you are. You are. It is no secret that this little church in Redlands has given a rather substantial amount of money through the Master's Academy International to the Central African Preaching Academy. Well, number three, be informed. Be informed. In other words, know Scripture. You know, don't be the person who says, oh, here we go again, talking about money. And again, I don't know that coming from any of you. I don't think that's happening. But be informed from Scripture. Receive the Word of God in this area in particular with eagerness, as the Thessalonians did. Be informed with regard to what Scripture says, but be informed about what the needs are. You know, you're going to adopt, if you haven't already as a family group, a missionary. Most of our Malawian missionaries have already been adopted by a particular family group. And so we're looking at a missionary in Czech Republic, two other missionaries in Croatia. And so your family group soon will have the opportunity to regularly engage with that missionary and his family. You'll be Skyping with him and perhaps her and their children. The time difference between here and there makes, makes that a little bit difficult. We'll Skype them into our worship service. We will not be the church that Tony McCracken talked about last week that just has some board in a back hallway with a bunch of pins on it and yarn tying them together. We want you to know these people like you know the people in our church because they are part of our church in essence. Wouldn't that be great? I mean, did you actually know these people? I mean, Tony has preached here. Some of you have actually shaken hands with him. You know, you had meals with him. The same with Jim Ayers and Gideon Manda, who grew up in Malawi. You know, Brian Biedebach, who's now back in the States. But these are people who have given their lives to missions work. And you and I know them. And my hope is that you will know them more and more and more and more and more. So the day won't come one day, you know, when I'm dead and gone and the new pastor comes in and says, hmm, we don't know these folks. Why would we keep giving? That happens. I hear about that so often. A new pastor comes to the church, and the church is giving $50 here and there to places all over the world. They don't know any of these missionaries. And he says, why are we doing this? We don't know these people. We don't know their theology. Friends, we know the theology of these men in whose lives you are pouring your resources. Well, number four, be faithful. Be faithful. I don't have to explain to you what that means, but be faithful. No one can prevent you from being faithful. No one, no time in any setting, in any venue ever can prevent you from being faithful. It's absolutely impossible. There are things that people can prevent you from doing, but no one, no one can make you be unfaithful. And your practice is a testament to that faithfulness. Father, thank you for the specificity of your word to help us know how we might honor you, be faithful to you. Lord, we thank you for Christ. We thank you that in this text that we've looked at this morning, we go on to see Paul's words where he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And, oh, God, you've made us rich in really an earthly sense, but we know this is not what Paul's referring to 
He's made us rich in heaven, and we will never, ever be stripped of the reward that will be increased by our willingness to pour into that measure of riches. Help us to remember Christ, the grace of Christ, as we extend grace to those who need Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.